The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Well, it's Friday, everybody. We've made it to the end of the week, but honestly, did any of us really know what day it was when this one started? I sure as crap didn't. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, everybody. I'm Dan Bespris. This is a hoop ball presentation. I uh, wanted to quickly mention here at the outset, cool stuff continuing to happen over at Hoop Ball, despite the suspension of all sports. Our buddy Greg Mraz, running the Hoop Ball Bulls podcast, had another episode out breaking down the firing of Gar Foreman, or the parting of ways. Nobody likes to say firing in a more traditional sense. Uh, Dio's writing about the Washington Wizards. You got a little bit of news on the NBA and the Players Association. Our, uh, our buddy Steve Vidovich also covering the Wizards from the fantasy snapshot angle. Dio on the uh, season thus far. That's kind of the written post-mortem side. Uh, Eric Ong looking at players that might be popular in next year's drafts due to breakouts this season. I love those articles. That's the hoop ball huddle. That's one of those things where you can look at an article like that and then you want to extrapolate and try to find all of those guys that are going to be buzzing because those are the dudes that are probably going to get overdrafted. Brandon Ingram, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Zion, Jason Tatum, really interesting names on that list, guys that uh, burst through a bit this year, and then you kind of have to hold on and and see where the hell they go next season. As far as today is concerned, it is the uh, final day of the week, meaning we are finishing up another division, and this one is the Northwest Division. So if you haven't been with us throughout the week, we covered the Portland Trailblazers on Monday. Oklahoma City Thunder on Tuesday, Utah Jazz Wednesday, and the Denver Nuggets yesterday. And today, we wrap things up with the Minnesota Timberwolves. A tiny bit of news on the NBA restarting front, and the news is basically just that Adam Silver uh, talked about uh, conference calls and and kind of the way that the NBA's been discussing things among the Board of Governors, and effectively, they're still just leaving everything fully undecided. The NBA's position since the outset has been that they want to err on the side of public health. It's why they were the first sporting league to officially stop operations. March 11th, that really started things for sports in general and just people in general. So don't expect them to rush things back. But one of the other side notes here is that, and I don't know if this is something he's going to be sticking with because it's April 17th at the time of recording this podcast and things change pretty dramatically on a week-to-week basis right now. And, frankly, they don't have to make any decisions in this moment. But if you recall, last week, I think it was, maybe the week before that, got to be honest, they blend and blur. I haven't had any idea what day things actually happened. Adam Silver talked about wanting to make sure things had wrapped up by Labor Day. In this discussion of his conference call, he kind of just said, look, we don't really know. We don't want to put start and end dates on things. And I believe... And you guys might be able to correct me if I get this one part wrong. I believe that Silver actually mentioned on or in in relation to this phone call that they are open to moving next year around a little bit, which I had to assume they were. There's almost no chance 
that this year doesn't run up against next year's start time in some capacity. Even if they had it done by Labor Day, you're already basically into training camp. So if that's the case, then this right now is your offseason. And the finals, I mean, the finals hangover is going to be very real because teams are going to have to play probably a couple of weeks later unless they push things back, which I believe they would. So leaving all options open, as they should, no decisions being made either way, uh, we continue to trudge our way towards likely just pulling the plug on the fantasy season, but I still don't think we have to make a call on that yet, and I'm going to stick by that until we kind of run out of time to. And I get it. You're probably, if you're a commissioner, by the way, you should probably be sending your league an email just saying, hey, you know, still sitting on stuff right now. Let's not, let's not get crazy. No reason to panic. I'm here with you guys. I'm watching all the news. We'll decide this league soon enough. Just to let everybody know that, you know, you're, you're still paying attention. Things are not going to drift off into the abyss. It's all under control. The Minnesota Timberwolves are a weird study in, in fantasy because they had a season that no one expected. And by that I mean, of course, Carl Anthony Towns missed 30 ball games. He was hurt almost the whole season. He was number four on a per-game basis this year, but he didn't play very much. 26.5 points, 3.3 three-pointers a game, almost 11 rebounds, 4.5 assists. That's a big number for Cat. 0.9 steals, 1.2 blocks, 51 from the field percent. That is 80% at the free-throw line. One of the big changes for Cat this year, of course, was the fact that he was chucking away from downtown. Went from averaging 4.6 attempted threes last year to 8 attempted threes per game. And, by the way, career 40%er from downtown, 41% this year. So taking all those three-pointers is a pretty good idea for him on offense. He's drilling them. Had a career low in free throw percent, but... That's the type of thing that usually evens out over a long season if you're healthy. Other notes, uh, steal rate was pretty close to his career mark. Block rate was down this year. Doing more, perhaps, on offense. Did that have an impact on his ability to block shots on defense, or was it just not really a focal point? Maybe a little of both. Regardless, he was still number four. But what you're looking at with Cat is, what's the pathway to the top two? Is there any way that he can get himself into the mix with Anthony Davis and James Harden? The way that that happens, there are a couple of kind of narrow paths to it. It could be free throw percent, although that seems unlikely. But he's, you know, he's attempting six to seven free throws a game this year. If he's shooting 85 to 90% at the line instead of 80, instead of a net neutral category, that now becomes a pretty big positive. Other possible avenue to get there. Blocking more shots. Instead of 1.2, let's get that back up point 1.7. Which, again, a bit far-fetched. He did have a 1.7 his rookie year. Since then, he's been much closer to 1.4, 1.5. So that's probably not enough to get him into the top two. The assists were a career high by a lot. Previous high was... And actually, he's gone up by one full assist each of the last two years, from 2.4 to 3.4, and then this year to 4.4. Rebounding was down this season... I think a lot of that has to do with playing hurt for stretches. I wouldn't chalk a whole lot up to what else was going on in this team. It wasn't like there was somebody out there just stealing all of his rebounds and you know nobody's nobody's coming for his job per se. He's played a lot of minutes, 
pretty much every year of his career. Not Tibbs minutes anymore, but he's still out there a lot. So I don't know that there's a path to get him inside the top two other than playing in all 82 games at a top four clip and hoping that either AD or Harden doesn't. But, but, this is still Cat we're talking about. Prior to this year, he had built himself on a legacy of durability, playing in all 82 games each of his first three seasons in the NBA. And last year, remember, he had a car accident concussion, and he only missed five games all season, despite all of that. So this is still a bona fide top five type of guy. He's dramatically improved his three-pointers per game. He improved his assists numbers. He's scoring more than ever before. So there's a lot to like. There isn't a whole lot of downward action to him. And I just wonder if people might be worried next year and he falls maybe to the fifth pick, which would be swell. I don't think he's fallen any farther than that, though, based on what we know. Elsewhere for Minnesota, there was just a lot of turnover on this team. The guys that finished the year as the most interesting fantasy players weren't on the team to begin the season. Uh, Jeff Teague did not finish the season with the Timberwolves, although he was having a relatively uninspiring season beforehand. Um, Andrew Wiggins didn't finish the year in Minnesota, although to his credit, he was actually having the best fantasy season, I think, of his career prior to that point. We talked... A little bit about it on the Warriors one, but I guess we can make mention here again since, listen, I mean, this was the site of Wiggins' basketball career to this point. And he's been in the NBA for a little while now. This is his seventh season. Excuse me, sixth season. You guys are jumping. I'm sure a few of you guys were like, no, Dan, wait. He logs a lot of minutes, generally plays in basketball games. He's been quite durable throughout his career. Uh, not horrible. Steals and blocks numbers. Averages about 1.6 combined. Four to five rebounds, two and a half to three assists. One would assume now with a higher offensive role. And he's upped his three-point shooting, and he's brought down his mid-range game a little bit. Still, with Wiggins, like we talked about on our Warriors episode last week, his role is going to be diminished in a big way with Klay Thompson and Steph Curry, who pretty much didn't play this year for the Warriors. Both of those guys will be back for next season. And uh, that pushes Wiggins way down the totem pole. So we're not going to worry too much about him right now. He's not on the Wolves anymore. Anyway, let's talk about the guys that are, that are now on Minnesota. And the second most interesting player on the team is D'Angelo Russell, who finished the season at number 58 on a per-game basis. Went on a little top 40 run with everybody else hurt on the team here the last, say, 20 ball games, pretty much since he came over to Minnesota. But for him, it's always an up-and-down thing. Looking at how he's done over long stretches is far more indicative of his value than what he does over the short stretches. And what I mean by that, and you know, this is the case for, I'd say, the majority of players in the NBA, but I think more so D'Angelo Russell exemplifies this in a different way, is that his runs are based heavily on his percentages. The other stuff... You know, high usage guy isn't going to change all that much on a two, three week basis. He's generally going to be in that 20 some odd point range. He's going to get you five, six, seven assists a game, you know, a steal and a little bit. He's going to hit a bunch of threes. But what defines his value are those ebbs and flows in percentages. And for instance, when we were talking about when he went on that top 40 run, it's because he was going high volumes 86% at the foul line. And then when the volume 
or the volume stayed almost exactly the same. And then when he cooled off a little bit, he was shooting 40.5% from the field. So these things play a big role. There's this short-term versus long-term thing, but it tends to balance out with him. And I suppose that actually makes it a fairly predictable asset. Problem is, he's consistently overdrafted. Consistently overdrafted because he scores. 23.5 points per game with Golden State this year, 21.7 in Minnesota, 6.6 assists, 4.5 rebounds, 1.4 steals with the Wolves. That was a good number for him. 41% from the field, 87 at the free throw line. He's a 77% career free throw shooter, 42 from the field. So that stuff, it does tend to level out. And when it levels out, he's probably going to sit somewhere in the 21, 22-point range, most likely. Maybe a little bit less than that, tough to say. Probably about six to six and a half assists, four-ish rebounds, 1.2 or so steals. About three threes in the modern NBA, maybe a tiny bit more than that, and probably in that 77 to 78% free throw shooting. And those numbers rolled all together make him something of a 45 to 65 range type of guy who's going to get drafted every year on the front end of that. Because he takes a lot of shots, he scores a bunch of points, makes a bunch of three-pointers, but nobody seems to notice that the dude is not good in either of the two percentage categories. Either of them, and awfully high in turnovers. So the nine cat takes a hit. I almost never end up with D'Angelo Russell on my fantasy team. He's generally been a bit dinged up throughout his career. He played 80 games his rookie season, then 81 in Brooklyn last year. But And the thought was, hey, did that... Was that the corner turn? Tough to, t- to say necessarily because both teams he was with this year had more reasons to rest him dinged up than not. If the Wolves are trying to make the playoffs next year, which I assume they will try to, he'll probably play a lot of games early in the season. If they get eliminated, you know, that's just something you have to deal with when the time comes. But I wouldn't worry too much about little things knocking him out, at least early in the season next year. Still, I think you'll probably see him drafted in the 30s and 40s, and it's going to be, as always, a fight for him to get to that point unless he really can keep his free throw percent in the mid-80s. I'll believe it when I see it. Haven't seen it for more than a couple weeks in a row yet. A couple other names in Minnesota that made some noise. James Johnson looked really good down the stretch for the Timberwolves. This is a guy who really just needed to get out from Miami where things had completely deteriorated for him. Uh, he has a player option for $16 million next year. I would assume he's taken it. He ain't getting that type of money on the free agent market again, especially not now with the salary cap likely to take a hit due to all the revenue loss here in uh, virus season 2020. Is he going to get the same role? that he had for these last couple of, uh, like, four-ish weeks in Minnesota next year? I have to think the answer is probably no, but I guess I don't know for sure. James Johnson was playing some small ball center in their current roster, which just isn't going to happen if Cat is starting at center and Nas Reed is backing him up, so that wedges out some of his center opportunity. How many minutes can he take from Wancho Hernan Gomez at the power forward spot? A handful? But 24? I don't think so. I also don't think, frankly, he could keep up his current pace for a whole season. He was going full tilt off the bench. Like, that was the most energy we've seen James Johnson put out on the floor in a long time. 
He was playing 23 and a half minutes a game and averaged almost 13 points, a three ball, 2.7 combined defensive stats, four and a half rebounds, three and a half assists, 51% from the field. A lot of that stuff is coming down over a longer sample size. But he was one of their better players down the stretch. So we had to talk about him at least a little bit. Malik Beasley is another name worth mentioning. He was number 85 over the last three weeks of the regular season. It's tough, you know, when we're talking about these guys because they almost everybody on the, the Timberwolves that's worth discussing right now had two very distinct portions to their season, and it's just really not fair to judge them by what happened pre-trade. So if you assume that most of these guys played roughly their last 14, 15 games in Minnesota, thereabouts, you're talking about D'Angelo Russell, who was number 68, basically, over that month in Minnesota. James Johnson was 89. Malik Beasley was 91. I think that would surprise a lot of people. Most folks are going to think that Beasley was actually in front of Johnson. They were basically neck and neck. Reason being, Malik Beasley was averaging 21 points and three and a half three-pointers a game. Those are big numbers, but... 0.7 combined defensive stats, whereas James Johnson, again, was at 2.7. So even though Beasley was blowing him out of the water in scoring and threes, better free throw percent, lower turnovers, he wasn't stealing the ball at all. I have reason to believe Malik Beasley is going to be a really interesting fantasy player next year because while some folks might, and here's the fear, I guess, for me is, is there any chance we could collect value on this guy the answer is I hope so, but I'm cautiously pessimistic about that. Meaning, he averaged 21 points a game and three and a half threes. Smart folks will look at those numbers and say, yeah, but he was taking 16 and a half shots a game for a team that was missing their top volume guy in Carl Anthony Towns. That So, you know, it, it's it's a very accurate assessment to say, look, he's not going to get that many shots when he's the third fiddle behind Towns and Russell as opposed to the number two guy. Number two guys, the, the drop-off from being a number two on a team to a number three, we've seen it a thousand times more so recently. There just aren't enough shots for that third dude. But the reason that I'm a tiny bit optimistic is Maybe people are going to take that information and they're going to drop him farther than they should. The more I think about it, the more I say it out loud, I think I come back to my original position, which is that that's assuming people are going to do more digging than they will. Simple fact of the matter is people are going to see that he averaged 21 points a game in Minnesota. He's going to get drafted probably inside the top 60 or 70, and he's got almost no shot to get there as the third fiddle unless he averages something like 1.3 or 1.4 steals a game, which is possible but he ain't scoring 21 points a game next year. It's not happening. He's just not going to get 16 and a half shots. I think he'd be lucky to get 13. Juancho Hernan Gomez is another of the second half of the season starters on this club, and he was number 145 over that stretch, averaging 13 points and seven rebounds. Uh, did average a steal in that mix, which, frankly, was more than I expected because, as we said on this podcast a few times, he's really just a points and rebounds guy, kind of like a poor man's Lowry Markinen, who already had kind of a tough season. It's difficult for guys who don't do a ton defensively, don't pass, don't have great percentages. It's tough for those guys to clear the fantasy hurdle. 
And Hernan Gomez is one of those guys. So he's not someone I'm going to be taking too many risks on. If he falls crazy low in the draft, I might grab him and just say, hey, you know, what if he plays 32 minutes a game at power forward? But I don't think that's happening either. And I don't know that anybody else on this team really has an inside track to enough playing time given their current makeup. I had high hopes for Jarrett Culver for next year, but with the trade for Malik Beasley, to me, I think that cuts it off. Unless they play Culver big minutes at shooting guard, but even then, he has no path to actually touching the basketball. I like his fantasy game. He's got a well-rounded game. Can't hit a free throw to save his life, but the other stuff is, is really interesting. Problem is, he's just not going to touch the ball. If he's out there with Towns, Russell, Beasley, and question mark, Wancho, I guess, he's probably going to take the fewest shots of anyone in the starting lineup. you got to have a little bit of volume, even if you are pretty good at collecting defensive stats. So Jared Culver, big-time loser at the trade deadline, and then he loses role moving into next season as well. So the Wolves, as you know, we go through each of these players one by one, and we talk about kind of each of them with their tale of two seasons. You look for things to pull away, lessons to learn from this particular organization or these particular players. Number one, the Wolves are going to be an up-tempo team that fires a lot of three-pointers, and they're going to be a place where people can find fantasy value. The problem is and was with this team that a lot of the guys either suffered from quiet deficiencies in their fantasy game. D'Angelo Russell, percentages, Malik Beasley didn't do anything on the defensive side of the ball. Juancho Hernan Gomez, both of the issues of the guys I mentioned, no defensive stats and bad percentages. Jarrett Culver, no usage. Cat, obviously, someone that doesn't really have any deficiencies. But... This is a team made up heavily of overdraft-type guys like D'Angelo Russell or buzzy guys that end up getting overdrafted, like a Malik Beasley, like a Wancho Hernan Gomez. I don't know that you can find a guy on this team and think, oh, well, people are going to be down on him because of X, Y, or Z, and so I'm going to be able to fall into a little bit of value. I continue to hope that that guy is Malik Beasley, that people assume the drop-off in volume won't be made up of elsewhere, but he's going to have to fall pretty far before I'm willing to take that shot on him. It's going to probably be for me outside the top 100 because, again, I don't see I don't see the usage in his corner. I see a path to top 90 kind of value for him, but I don't, I don't know that I can get much beyond that given the fact that he's about to lose a ton of shots. Maybe top 75 in a perfect world. And then that's it. So I think this team rapidly became kind of a two, two-and-a-half-horse ball club because guys just have fantasy issues. Arguably, the greatest value on this Timberwolves roster next year from a fantasy standpoint, arguably, is Cat. We're not going to try to handicap what might be going through his head as a result of the tragedy he just went through and will continue to go through because we just don't know what life is going to be like for any of us in five, six, seven months or whenever this all turns out to be the case. Certainly everyone here at Hoop Ball, we continue to send whatever good thoughts his way. 
But from a fantasy standpoint, that's what we're breaking down here. Put the reality stuff aside for a minute. That's sad. We're not here to talk about it. And generally, I think we like to consider ourselves more of a break for the brain on this show right now. He got hurt finally. The story of Cat this season is he finally broke down. But he's got all the reason in the world to have a bounce-back season next year. He's got his best friend with him, D'Angelo Russell. They won't even care if they're winning. I'm sure they're going to prefer it. But they're going to be having fun. And that tends to lead, and we saw it. Chris Paul is the ultimate example of this. Get him out from a place where he's unhappy. Make these guys happy. They're going to play better. Sometimes the value is dropping two spots. Carl Anthony Towns gets drafted fifth instead of third. That's a value. And if you have the fifth pick in your draft, you might have a shot to get him this year. That would not have happened in the past. I don't think. I mean, maybe. I'm sure he went fifth in something, some draft. Not many that I've been in. Maybe none. Maybe none that I've been in. The rest of his team you can pretty much leave behind. Jordan McLaughlin had a decent season, but it's not going to be fantasy relevant. Josh Okogie. Jake Lehman, Amari Spellman. I don't even honestly, I don't even know the contract situation of a lot of these guys. I do know that Cat, D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley, and uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez are expected to be uh, around, and that's what we're that's kind of the premise we're operating on. But again, I think Cat is your potential value play as he falls towards the back end of that top five. But with durability in a top four type season, he has an opportunity to be inside the top three, even if he's not going to get up and over the Anthony Davis, James Harden hump and into the top two. Lessons from a team standpoint, I think that the short-sighted among us might say that the lesson here is you just don't draft guys on bad teams ever. But to me, that's going way too far. Way, way, way too far. Yes, it's easier to have top-level picks on teams that are winning because guys have a, a greater incentive to play. But, and and as secondarily to that, the best players are probably going to create wins for their team. So sometimes, to a certain degree, that goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, but it's not always the case. I mean, Nick Vucevic at... Uh, not a very good Orlando team. It's at 17. Now you could argue, listen, they're trying to make the playoffs, and maybe that's the real point here. How many of the guys inside the top 20 are on teams missing the playoffs? And this is kind of an interesting note. Damian Lillard would have missed them if the season ended right now. Hassan Whiteside, John Collins, Bradley Beal, Trey Young. And I believe that's it. Inside the top 20, those are the only guys on team. And Cat, sorry, but again, he missed half the season. Kyrie Irving's in there as well. His team would have made the playoffs, but most likely, but, you know, he's not playing. So, yeah, there is a correlation. Good players put up big fantasy lines and tend to get their team's wins, which makes them more competitive. But if you dodged guys on teams that you didn't think were going to make the playoffs, what would that have meant for you this year? You would have skipped over Cat? Would you have skipped Trey Young? Atlanta wasn't making the playoffs this year. 
you can make these broad stroke declarations about who you will and will not draft on teams that might be making the playoffs or not making the playoffs. At the end of the day, what you ought to be looking for are whether or not teams are trying to make the playoffs. At the start of this season, I think you would have argued that the Timberwolves would have been trying to make the playoffs. There's no way for you guys to know that Cat was going to finally have his terrible season this year. It was going to come eventually. There was just too much wear on those tires from the Thibodeau years for it not to do something to his body at some point. Was it going to be this year? How did we know? No one knew. What about Trey Young and the Hawks? I mean, you had to assume they were probably going to try to make the playoffs. The teams you, I think, could safely say weren't even going to be trying to make the playoffs were who? Like Cleveland? They didn't have anybody that you were drafting inside the top 40 anyway. Who else was on that list? Teams you knew weren't going to be trying to make the playoffs. Don't say the Warriors because their season came apart when Steph got hurt. The Pistons? Nah, I mean, they were playoff team last year. Why wouldn't? Why not assume they were going to do it again? Bulls almost definitely were supposed to be trying to make the playoffs this year. You might have argued the Wizards, and then they ended up having... They're in the nine seed right now in the East. The Hornets, they were in a rebuild. I guess you could argue they... That was probably a team you didn't want much to do with. And as it turned out, you probably didn't want a whole lot to do with them. And then maybe the Knicks. What about in the Western Conference? I don't think there was any team in the Western Conference you could have looked at them and said, this team is not going to be trying to win and make the playoffs. The Cavs, the Knicks, that's probably it. So don't eliminate players on teams you don't think are very good because they might miss a game or two down the stretch. The ones you might want to think take a little pause with are teams, are guys on teams that you don't think have any incentive to try to win. And I don't think that was the Wolves this year. They had a new regime. They were trying out new stuff. They wanted to win. They just weren't very good. But if every team that wasn't very good was a team you avoided, you would have missed a lot of really interesting fantasy players. There's value on those teams. Decent player, bad team. Chew that joint up. And that brings us to our weekend. Put a pin in it. Southwest Division will wrap things up in the Western Conference next week. Uh, five more teams before we flip over to the East. Still teasing the fact that we're going to have some guests on this show at some point soon to talk about lessons learned overall from the fantasy season. But in the meantime, we'll just keep breaking down clubs and setting the table for our weirdo makeshift is it the offseason in the NBA and in every sport. I'm Dan Vespers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. Reminder, once again, if you'd like to get involved with us here at HoopBall, we are still putting articles out. We are still doing sales work. Hit me up, at Dan Vespers, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S on Twitter. Email teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Please rate and review the podcast. I haven't mentioned that in a long time. It's not easy, by the way, to do shows right now <laughs> for a lot of reasons. We got the virus stuff. Uh, I got the newborn going on around here. It's craziness. It's chaos. We're all trapped. We're getting through it together, but please do drop a five-star on this thing if you have a moment. And if you've already done it, find somebody else's phone. You're all trapped inside with other people with cell phones. See if you can get them to review the show. Thanks a bunch, everybody. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Back at you Monday. We'll start our trip through, again, the Southwest Division, which is weird, by the way, because, you know, is it really the Southwest? <laughs> See you later, everybody.
This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.